Chapter 6 of Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains by Stella M. Francis. Chapter 6 The Punster Makes a Find. When Marion Stanlock selected the term High Peak as her campfire name, her deliberations carried her back from Hiawatha Institute to the scene of most of the years of her child life in Holly Hill. Confronted with the task of choosing a name, she first consulted her ideals to determine what associations she wished to have in mind when, in after years, she recalled the motive and circumstances of her selection. Home surroundings had always had much of beauty for Marion. From the beginning of his business career, Mr. Stanlock had had a large income and was able to supply his family with many of the expensive luxuries, as well as all the so-called necessities of life. But for Marion, the artificial luxuries had little special attraction. She accepted them as a matter of course, but that is about all the claim they had upon her. She enjoyed the use of her father's automobiles, but she wondered sometimes at the scheme of things which entitled her to an electric runabout or a limousine and a chauffeur, while thousands of other quite as deserving girls were not nearly as well favoured. The ability and the disposition to look at things occasionally from this point of view contributed much to the generosity of Marion's nature. She was a favourite among rich and poor alike, except among those rich who could understand why the wealthy ought to be specially favoured, and those poor too narrow and circumscribed to credit any wealthy person with genuine generosity. Being of this artless and unartificial trend of mind, Marion must naturally turn to either nature or human merit for the selection of her campfire name. She was not sufficiently mature to pick a poetic idea from the achievements of men, and so it fell to nature to supply a quaint notion as a foundation for her nom de fire. Seated in her room at Hiawatha Institute one evening, Marion cast about her mental horizon for some scene or association in her life that would suggest the desired name. The first that came to her was the picture of a towering mountain, conspicuous not so much for its actual loftiness as for its deceptive appearance of great height. In all her experiences at home it had never occurred to Marion to think of this individual portion of prehistoric geologic upheaval as a mass of earth and stones. She thought of it only as the most beautiful an expression of nature that she had ever seen, graceful of form, rich in the season's decorations. This mountain was probably about as slender as it is possible for a mountain to be, compared or contrasted with a nearby and characteristic mountain of the range. It was as a lady's finger to a telescoped giant's thumb. 
High Peak, as the tapering sugar loaf of earth was called, was located west of Hollyhill, close to the town. In fact, the portion of the city inhabited by the main colony of miners' families was built on the sloping ground that formed a foothill of the mountain. And so when Marion named herself as a campfire girl after this mountain, she had in mind an ideal expressed in the first injunction of the law of the campfire, which is to seek beauty. High Peak was her ideal of beauty and grandeur. It stood also with her for lofty aspiration. Thus she pictured the physical representation of the name she chose as a member of the great army of girls who seek romance, beauty, and adventure in everyday life. On the day when the Flamingo campfire arrived at Holly Hill, another train pulled in at the principal station several hours earlier. It came from the same direction and might, indeed, have borne the thirteen girls and their guardian if they had seen fit to get up early enough to catch a three o'clock train. But the thirteen girls would have been much interested if they could have beheld the eight boy passengers as they got off in a group and looked around to see if there was anyone at the depot who knew any of them. Relieved at the apparent absence of anybody who might recognize the one of their number whose home was in Hollyhill, or another who had been a frequent visitor there, the eight boys hastened to a corner half a square away from the depot and boarded a street car that was waiting for the time to start from this terminal point. The car started almost immediately after they had seated themselves, moving in a southwesterly direction through the business section of the city and then directly west toward High Peak, passing along the northern border of the mining colony and then making a curve to the north through a more prosperous residence district. The eight boys all wore scout uniforms. They were the full membership of one Spring Lake Patrol, the leader of which was Ernest Hunter, whose home was in Hollyhill, and who had invited all the scouts of his patrol to be his guests during the holidays. This invitation followed the receipt of information that Marion Stanlock had invited the members of her campfire to spend the Christmas holidays with her. Ernest Hunter was well prepared to entertain his guests in real scout fashion. His parents' home was not large enough to afford sleeping quarters, and other ordinary conveniences for seven visitors in addition to the regular personnel of the family. But the boy had taken care of this deficiency long before he had ever dreamed that it might occur. The Hunter home included a large tract of land running clear up to the foot of the mountain, which at this point was rocky and covered with a plentiful growth of white pine, hemlock and black spruce. Hidden behind an irregular heap of boulders and a small timber foreground was a cave, formed by nature and nature's and artistic elements, that could not fail to delight 
the most fastidious wonder-seeker. The entrance was about the size of an ordinary doorway, flanked by twin boulders like columns for an arched shelter. Within was a large room with fairly smooth walls and a ceiling of Silurian rock and sandstone. The cave, as it now appeared, would hardly have been recognized by its aboriginal frequenters. It had been converted into a place of civil abode or resort, retaining only enough of its pristine wildness for romantic effect. Ernie Hunter had done his work well. He had provided for heat for the cave by running a galvanized stove pipe up through a crevice in the rocks and filling with stones and cement all the surrounding vents to guard against the draining in of water from the mountain side. He also collected and stored at home a supply of old mattresses, blankets, kitchen utensils, a laundry stove, and other domestic conveniences usable in a place of this kind. A week before vacation, he wrote thus to his twelve-year-old brother Paul. I'm going to bring seven boys home with me. We are going to spend the vacation in the mountains, with the cave as headquarters. Will you have the stove hauled there, and set up, and keep a fire in it a good deal of the time to dry the place out thoroughly? We will come to Holly Hill on an early train, so as to have plenty of time to haul the mattresses and other outfittings to the cave, and get it ready for habitation. We will all have guns, and will have some great times shooting game. Of course, you will be in on all this. Paul did as requested. When the patrol arrived at the hunter home, he reported to his brother that the latter's instructions had been carried out, and all was in readiness for the removal of the outing outfit from the storeroom over the garage to the cave. Everything but the mattresses were piled into Mr. Hunter's seven-passenger touring car. The eight boys piled in on top, and the first run to their holiday headquarters was made. As the machine drove up toward the mouth of the cave, the boys were startled at seeing two rough-looking men emerge from the entrance and slink away to the south, half-hidden by the unevenness of the ground and the thick shrubbery. Their hurried movements and evident desire to avoid meeting the boys marked them as suspicious characters, fearing that they might have committed some malicious act to render the place uninhabitable. Ernie hastened toward the cave, followed by the other boys, to make an inspection. Before entering, however, Ernie, who was the patrol leader, asked four of the boys to return and watch the automobile. Division of the patrol, with this in view, was quickly arranged, and Ernie, Clifford Long, Harry Gilbert, and Jerry McCracken, proceeded into the cave. The entrance of the cave was protected against the cold by a heavy blanket hung over a pole anchored at either end in the rocky side at the top. Pushing aside this wilderness portier, the four investigators stepped in. 
lighting their way with two or three electric flashlights. They were relieved to discover that no damage had been done to the cave or to the stove set up within. After satisfying themselves on this score, they proceeded to replenish the fire by putting in several cuts of spruce, a good supply of which had been provided by Ernie's brother. The cave was still warm and had been well dried out by the steady fire kept up by Paul for two or three days. The entire patrol now reassembled and mapped out a plan for completing their day's work. It was decided that Ernie should return in the automobile to his home a mile and a half away and bring the mattresses and a supply of food that was being prepared for them at the house, while the others took up themselves to the task of cutting a supply of brushwood to lay on the floor of the cave as a kind of spring support for the mattresses. Accordingly, Ernie got into the machine and drove away while the other boys got busy with the task assigned to them. The patrol leader returned in less than an hour, accompanied by Paul and a farm hand employed by Mr. Hunter. They brought with them not only four mattresses, but the shotguns and rifles shipped by the boys from the academy for their mid-winter hunting. Ernie announced that their trunks and valises also arrived and that George, the farm hand, would return for them in the automobile. The work progressed rapidly, and by the time the trunks and valises arrived, the mattresses were all in position. The food and cooking utensils were stored away in the narrowest compass of space that could be arranged for them, and a large pile of resinous wood had been gathered. It was now four o'clock, and the boys felt that they were entitled to a rest. A large boulder with a flat end, two and a half feet in diameter, was rolled into the cave and propped into position, with slabs of stone for a table. On this was placed a large kerosene lamp, which, when burning, lighted up the cave very well. A supply of camp chairs had been brought with the first load, so that everybody had a seat. I call this something swell from the point of view of a smart rustic who hasn't absorbed any city nonsense, observed Miles Berryman, seating himself comfortably in a chair and gazing about with a great satisfaction. I think, Ernie, that we must all agree that you are a very wide-awake opportunist. Is that the kind of musician who plays an opportune at every opportunity? inquired John St. John, in a tone of gravity as deep as the cabin in which they were housed. Now see here, Johnny two times, exclaimed Miles portentously. You know what we came near doing to you six months ago for springing that kind of stuff. We came near ducking him in the lake, reminded Earl Hamilton. Yes, continued Miles, in the attitude of a stage threat, and if we can't find a lake around here, we can find a deep snowdrift to throw him into. I wonder if he catches the drift of that argument, 
said Clifford Long with a wink at Miles. He not only catches it, but he understands, and hence he does snowdrift. Does snowdrift? Of what the menacing Miles means, declared John, who had long answered to the nickname of Johnny two times, because of the combination of baptismal and family names by which he was legally known. A roar of pun-protesting groans filled the cabin, and as several of the boys arose in attitudes of vengeance, the punster made a dive for an exit, and disappeared beyond the blanket portio. None of the protesters followed. They did not feel like engaging in any vigorous sport, following the strenuous exercises they had had. Five minutes later, Johnny two times returned. One glance at his face was sufficient guarantee that he had lost all his punning facetiousness. He held in his hand a bit of paper, which he laid on the stone table by the lamp. "'Read that, boys!' he exclaimed excitedly. "'I found it outside. Those men must have dropped it. They're after Mr. Stanlock, going to hold him up. The ten other boys needed no second bidding. They crowded around so eagerly that nobody could read. Here, I'll read it aloud, said Clifford, picking up the paper and holding it close to the lamp. Here is what he read. I will bring old Stanlock along the foothill pike. We'll slow up in the sand stretch. Be there ready to grab him, Jake. End of Chapter 6